You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Opening day slash it already happened in one level, but it's happening in multiple levels uh, today and tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. We're kicking off the 2023 season along with Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York City. My name is Tyler Mon. Guys, I guess we're, you know, we're simultaneously like six days past opening day for AAA, but we're at opening day for like most of AA and the class A levels. We'll just we'll celebrate it multiple times. How are you, fellas? Yeah, I kind of like having multiple opening days. To be honest yeah. with you, it's like just multiple uh, holidays in uh, in a really compressed time frame. I'm into it. Yeah, I mean, it it kind of reminds me of you know how they always talk about the twelve days of Christmas, and I always thought as a kid, like, are there supposed to be twelve of these? And your parents are like, no, you have one. You get all your presents on one day. I guess you know Jewish people have Hanukkah and they get presents spread out across that. But for, like for us, for True. minor league baseball, we had major league opening day. That was celebratory across the entire sport. We had AAA opening day, which was fun in our corner of the sport. Now we have double A, high A, single A. Most teams are today on Thursday, April 6th. Everybody else will be following in full season ball on Friday. Uh, so every time I come into the office and I just say happy opening day, and it feels like the best version of Groundhog Day. Yeah, it, it always applies to something. And, and, and the first Thursday in April is, to me, you know, as a staunch traditionalist, um, the most like real minor league opening day that first Thursday in April, but it is getting more and more confusing with how many opening days they, there are probably an obscure reference, but we were talking about this earlier. I think it's like um, one of my favorite movie titles of all time is bad Lieutenant Two: colon port of call colon new Orleans. <laughs> so this is <laughs> what? minor league baseball opening day or minor league baseball <laughs> calling opening day colon Triple double A, high A, and single A. I think only I think this is sorry, but I had to look up Bad Lieutenant. Uh, and anytime uh, Ben can reference a it's a Nicolas Cage movie, Nicolas Cage and Eva Mendes. I didn't know this, directed by Warner Herzog. Bad Lieutenant 2, Port of Call. Our equivalent is League Baseball opening day. (laughs) Wow. Val Kilmer was in this movie? Exhibit? Jennifer Coolidge? What? I need to All again, directed by Herzog, which is like directed by Warner Herzog. Anyway, my nonsense. Michael Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I I clearly got nothing. I just wanted to tell people people about Lieutenant Two Protocol. That's all. So that's today's podcast. And then tune in next week. We're gonna yeah, tune in next week as Nicholas Cage joins us to talk about his 2009 uh cinematic vehicle. Um well guys, we've got a ton to talk about on this week's episode of the show before the show. We've got a, a fantastic guest coming up, uh, and a guy who is uh a person that you will know as one of the people who um loves minor league baseball like you do, and that's Ryan McGee from ESPN. We'll talk with him coming up here in a little bit. Uh, but before we get to all of that. You can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. You can tweet at us, Ben's at Ben's Biz, Sam's at Sam, Dykes or MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. And uh, we are proud 
to announce on uh, the full opening week episode of the show before the show for 2023 that the massive two-year-long project that you know as Minor League Ballpark Guides is complete. And a huge congratulations uh, to Ben and the entire team uh, for getting this thing done. This was a a passion project over the last couple of years for a lot of us, uh, and it has been very cool to see it take shape. Uh, Greg Klayman at MLB was one of our big champions with this. Um, This is pretty amazing, and it feels amazing for those of us who only contributed like a handful. Uh, Ben, we've got how many total ballpark guides, and what is the percentage that you did? Yeah, I mean, listeners of this podcast know we've been talking about ballpark guides for a long time. They've been just coming out on an individual basis. Sometimes we used a recent ballpark guide to just talk about that stadium in question. And more recent weeks and months, it's just been like, let's not talk about ballpark guides. Let's just get it done. I feel personally like I wrote like 370. It just feels like that. But then when I was looking at our spreadsheet where we try to keep track of this massive project, I wrote a little less than half. There's obviously 119 ballparks, obviously. There's 119 ballparks instead of 120 because Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium is you know shared by Palm Beach and Jupiter. So there's 119. I wrote slightly less than half. I think the official number or my final count was like 56. And I was like, wow, I did so much. But yet that was still less than half this project. And uh, I was feeling a sense of accomplishment last night, not just for myself, but like a sense of pride thinking like, wow. Think how many people contributed to this, because in addition to writing a minor league ballpark guide for every team, we now have a very well designed uh, by Dan Rivkin with uh, you know, great input and, uh, you know, sort of overall management by Jason Ratliff. Now it's like an awards show acceptance <laughs> speech. Um, you know, we have an interactive map where you can search minor league baseball ballparks by state, by parent club. We have a bunch of uh, articles I wrote, some of which I repurposed from previous content about, you know, the best in the minors, which is, of course, very uh, subjective. But, you know, just to give an overview of all these great things in the minor league landscape, it's all in one place. You can plan a road trip or you can just learn more about minor league baseball. And, um, you know, Tyler, you wrote, especially as this project got underway, you know, a, a very solid handful of ballpark guys. You were a big contributor. Josh Jackson, our great, great friend, um, I think did more than anyone but of course me but uh did did <laughs> did did a ton uh but you'd look around sam chipped in with uh with the norfolk, the, the norfolk guide and you know it was just you know part of the day-to-day awareness of it and you know helping out i just look at so many kelsey uh kelsey hennigan um some of the major league beat writers chipped in especially you know last off season and on and on and on and uh that's what started to hit me is like wow it took dozens of people, untold thousands of hours to yeah. put this together and then to see it live in conjunction with the truest of all minor league baseball opening days, Thursday, April 6th, and uh, out there as a resource. And I really hope people appreciate it and uh, use it and plan their own road trips and give us feedback. And this is obviously an ongoing project because even though now it's all done, you and I and everyone listening knows that minor league baseball so much is subject to change and we're going to yeah. have to you know, continue to maintain these guides. Uh, you know, my least favorite aspect when like corporate stadium naming rights change and then you got to change all that, but you know, just the food, um, you know, if we have a food section, we got to make sure if we have sections on, you know, things to do in the area and places to eat, are those places, you know, still in business or is there something else really popular we need to get in? So maybe not during this season, but in the off season, that's now going to be a regular thing for as long as we can keep this active and vital. Uh, to continue to make this like a living, breathing 
organism, not just something that happened to come out in April of 2023 and then just sits there until it's completely irrelevant. Uh, what that is what the was the last one to come across the line? I always remember that scene from uh, Malcolm in the Middle where Hal is painting in the garage and it seems like he's just throwing up a whole bunch of insanity. And then he adds like one little paint stroke and everybody goes, oh, and it's beautiful. What was the last ballpark to come across the line? Well, it's funny because the first one ever done was Amarillo, the home, uh, Hodgetown, home of the Sod Poodles. I chose that way back in June 2021 because it was one of the more recent ballparks I'd been to in 2019. Of course, there was no 2020 season. Then all the way to April 2023, the last one in was Akron. So we started with Amarillo, ended with Akron, uh, did a lot of teams. We went A to A. a. We covered the minor leagues from A oh. to A. Yeah, I guess we're kind of going backwards. Alphabetically going from AM to AK or just going around the entire <laughs> alphabet and coming back around. It was a circular batting piece. around, if you will, because as we there know, we go. you well, have, then to we have to return to the yeah. first. Well, that's true. All right. Yeah, we have, right. have two Amarillo. we were just going time. by letters, Sam. Jeez Louise. No, if we're batting around, we have to have the same ballpark. I was twice. just going to make a point that when the alphabet bats around, it doesn't go from A to Z. It goes from A back to A. When have you ever heard the album? Anyways, we're getting way <laughs> no, off. No, but I agree with all of you. Uh, batting around, you, you have to repeat something at least. Thank once. you, Ben. Yes. No, I think we're okay. Yeah, we're all on the same established. page. Established. Yeah. Guys okay. are weirdly arguing while saying the exact same thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're telling me we have a podcast in 2023? <laughs> Sam and I are like, uh, we're like an old couple. We've been doing this for too long. Now we just argue <laughs> about things. Listening are, to me. Things we're in agreement about. We just argue over now. Anyway. What I was going to get to, Ben, was like, as you're putting all of this together, and like you said, you had almost half, um, but you've overseen all of them. I mean, you've had your hands in every single one that's gone up on the site, and now people can see that online at MLB.com slash fans slash ballpark dash guides um, for that beautiful landing page, which I agree is is really a work of art. But as you've been putting this together, I mean, you've been to all, all these places, literally, we know that. So you already have some themes about what minor league baseball means, but like as you're seeing these come together and then the categories we use and everything, what have you learned or what do you feel like has been an all-encompassing theme? Hmm. An all-encompassing theme would just be, yeah, less ballparks than there maybe used to be, but still, I think it's only the awareness that there were once more ballparks that make minor league baseball seem kind of small right now, but still 120 teams in 119 ballparks is still just huge. There's still no sporting coherent organized sporting body that I think really approaches that. So at least not in the United States. Yeah. At least not in the United States. Exactly. So um, I think it was just that theme of like, let's highlight just how large this world is still just how diverse it is. And uh, you know, my old tagline never trademarked it. So please don't anyone else do it, but exploring America through minor league baseball. And that's where it was, you know, Interesting to read, you know, the other contributors, of which there were many, um, because it wasn't just the ballpark. Well, one, it was interesting to read other people's takes on a ballpark experience. Um, but two, just saying if people knew the town that they were writing about, just reading, you know, what people chose to highlight in terms of things to do in the area, uh, restaurants to check out, that kind of thing. Um, there's certainly a lot of leeway in that category. There were certainly sometimes I found myself just having to Google around, but um, or ask the team or whatever the case may be. But it was nice when people, I think, gave a personal touch and be like, um, like even the last one we did, Akron, that was by Dan Rivkin, who also designed the landing page. And I saw him tweet today, like, finally, I got a chance to uh, mention Luigi's cheese salad. 
like dream come true. And that's just a place in Akron. I guess it has a famous cheese salad. I don't know what's up with Akron with their JoJo's and sauerkraut balls. And now apparently they do have a lot of there's a lot of unique local foods in Akron, Ohio. I never would have guessed. Yeah, there really there really are. Um, So I think that is the theme of just the number of ways you can, uh, you know, enjoy minor league baseball and explore these places. And um, I'm, I'm fully aware that a lot of people don't have necessarily the time or money to put together some epic road trip. But I do think there are obviously people listening and people reading the ballpark guides who are at least can think, you know, I've never done this or I've always been meaning to do this. And you can start small and, you know, the map is searchable and you're, you know, we always use the Orioles as an example because it's the best example of a farm system with with great proximity between the clubs and the parent club. But you could look at the schedules and probably get the entirety of the Baltimore Orioles system done in a long weekend. Not that it's about something to bang out and just get done, but, you know, it doesn't have to be like, let's plan some epic road trip and hit 72 ballparks over a period of, uh, you know, three months. You can make this work for you. Choose your own adventure. And even if you're just visiting one ballpark, you know, look at the guide, learn more about it and be like, you know what, we're gonna have time for lunch beforehand. Whoa, the ballpark guide has this barbecue place that's recommended or whatever the case may be. Um, just how many ways there are to you know, choose your own adventure with minor league ballpark travel, both in terms of long road trips uh, and just, you know, individual spots. Yeah, I think that's kind of like that point you made on that last point of a lot of people go on vacation. They just travel for work. They they travel the country for whatever reason. You might end up in Nashville. You might end up in Nashville. You might end up in Akron. You might end up in Fort Wayne. People are going to look up, hey, there's a minor league town here. What do I need to know about the ballpark? And, you know, not to get too inside baseball or in the pun, but like the SEO of that, just having now this resource that there is a definitive guide on what it is like to go to a Fort Wayne Tin Caps game or a West Michigan Whitecaps game or a Salt Lake Bees game. Like that's, I think, how a lot of people are going to find this. Now it's also housed in this one great place for people to find and plan their own long road trips, but it doesn't need to be that. It can just be, hey, I want to go to this place for the first time, or maybe you're between I did. Maybe you're going to North Carolina and you're like, I want to hit up two minor league parks. That's how much time I have. Five are within driving distance. What is best for the minor league experience I want? Read up on all five and, and pick and choose what you think is best for you. And all of that is available now at your fingertips, which right. I think is huge, not just for what minor league baseball can be, but what the fan experience can be. And I think it's going to be great for people to read this. Not just like you said before, it's not just for April 2023. It's for next year. It's for the season after that. And however long we keep these updated, which hopefully is as long as minor league baseball is around. Yeah. And right. And of course, this being the internet also, you know, please be gentle, but people are going to read the ballpark guides, especially with teams they know well and be like, how did they not mention this concession item? Or how did they do this? Or how are you going to say things to do in the area? And you didn't mention the house where John Quincy Adams died, you know, like whatever the case may be. Um, we want the feedback. These will be kind of living and breathing organisms to an extent. And, uh, you know, we're, we're always able to always willing to change and add, you know, through the years to make these as vital as possible. And a lot of that will be on reader feedback and of course, team feedback. Uh, sometimes they might say you missed something, but other times they say, Hey, here's what's new. You know, this is what needs to be included. We did renovations. We've talked about renovations on this ballpark, you know, that, that needs to be added. We have this food item that's now our most popular, you know, that needs to be added. Um, there's infinite ways to go about this. 
it is a living, breathing thing, the Ballpark Guides Project, which, again, as uh, Ben and Sam noted, you can find it at MLB.com slash fans slash ballpark dash guides. And uh, pretty cool stuff, pretty exciting stuff. And one of our favorite minor league ballparks is a little crown jewel in a place called Asheville, North Carolina. And that's where we are headed next. Ben, uh, tee up this week's conversation because it's a really fun one that we've already uh, gotten recorded and kicked us off on a, a great note for this episode. Yeah, we had a lot of fun talking to ESPN's Ryan McGee, who, uh, you know, covers private. He, he's part of, of course, the Marty and McGee podcast. Uh, he covers primarily you know, NASCAR and college sports, but he is a minor league baseball guy through and through. And his new book, Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, details his 1994 internship with the Asheville Taurus. That book just came out uh, earlier this week. He was in Asheville when we spoke to him to throw out the first pitch at that night's uh, at Thursday night's Taurus game. And Ryan is ready to have a rambunctious and rollicking and riveting conversation. I got three R's in there alliteratively. And I think that's about all I got, but um goes without saying, we all super appreciated Ryan's time and really had a great time talking about it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ryan McGee is a senior writer for ESPN and co-host of the Marty and McGee on ESPN Radio and the SEC Network. He has written several books, including, for our purposes, his most recent and uh, most interesting for a minor league baseball podcast, welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time. That's 1994 at McCormick Field with the Asheville Tourists. And joining us live and direct from Asheville, North Carolina, he'll be at the Tourist game tonight, uh, April 6th, is Ryan McGee. Ryan, thanks for joining us. No, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna have to go down to the to the hotel gym and get my get my shoulder warmed up. I was supposed to throw out a first pitch tonight. I've never done that. I used to – I was telling you guys before we recorded, I, I used to hand the ball that summer I worked in Asheville. I'd hand the ball to the people before they throw the, out the first pitch, and I'd say, you know, there's no shame on standing in the grass and not getting on the mound. And I'd also say, and throw it high, because you'd much rather throw it high than, you know, bounce it six times. But we'll uh, we'll see. It might rain, and if it rains, it would, it would be disappointing – for for the tourists, but it would probably um probably be good for me. <laughs> but we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um it it'll go great. It'll be the best first pitch of all time. I'm oh, sure yeah. reading upper 80s on the radar gun at least. Um but you're in Asheville. This book is about the Asheville tourists, specifically you just out of college, 1994, huge minor league baseball fan your whole life, baseball fan in general. And you go to the winter meetings, land a job with the Asheville tourists. Obviously, it was a memorable summer. You wrote a whole book about it. Um, tons of great anecdotes in that book. But did you know in your head for years now that this is something you wanted to write about and you were just going to get to it one day? Or did it take a while to say, you know what, I think I have a book here. How did this come about in terms of getting this all down on paper? Well, I mean, bless my wife's heart. 
we've been married more than 20 years and bless my friends' hearts. I've been telling a lot of these stories over and over and over again. And, um, you know, the buzz phrase with the kids now is what core memories. So everybody's like, it's a core memory. That summer was a core memory. And, you know, I was only there for one year and my friends that have worked in minor league baseball, you know, for decades, um, that is funny that my, my friends I worked with that summer, like, how did you remember this? I'm like, I was only there for a minute. Like I was only there one year. So, and I'm also, again, bless my wife's heart. She'll tell you, I throw nothing away. And so I had two boxes of stuff like, you know, scorecards and programs and ticket stubs and pay stubs. And, you know, our, 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 you know, the first thing you see in the photo section of the book is the sheet they handed us on day one. All right. These are your duties as each, as each type, different type of intern. I kept all that stuff, man. And so and I took, I, I'm not a big journal, journal, journaler. Is that a word? I don't keep journals or a diary or whatever, but, but that summer, about halfway through the summer, I started taking notes. And and it just was because I felt like, man, I, there's no way that there's another place with characters like this. The reality is what you guys know, and Ben, you know, every ballpark has these characters, every single one of them. And everyone who's worked in minor league baseball could write a book. And I just happened to be the one that was lucky enough to, uh, to, to have the opportunity. And that's what I, I hope. Yes, it's about me in a specific window with a specific team in one specific season, but I hope that it's a love letter to just minor league baseball in general, because again, you can get any employee of any team from any summer and they probably could write their own book. Cause we all have the stories, but yeah, I just, I just happened to be the one that, that had the opportunity and I hope I did right by all the rest of them. Yeah. I mean, you kind of answered my follow-up question is this book has so much detail with you know the day-to-day life of an intern. It, it comes across very vivid, you know, in the book, you mentioned, you know, that you're a big fan of the movies, uh, you know, a huge movie buff in general. And it seems almost written with an eye towards maybe not, maybe you're thinking of this, you know, it could be adapted into a movie or if not that, just the, the, the approach you bring to it, you know, cinematic, you're kind of, you're narrating it, you're foreshadowing big events like the mascot Royale. You know, what was your approach in putting this together in terms of, um, you know, you had a lot of stories to tell, but how you wanted the story overall to be told? Well, you know, you got to have an arc and you got to have all those things. And it begins and ends with me, you know, obviously I've worked for ESPN my entire adult life, except for that summer. And, you know, the book essentially opens with me bombing my interview at ESPN right out of college for a production assistant job. And then the book ends with, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything here. I went to work for ESPN. I've been working there ever since. And, um, but it was a year. Between, I still hold the record for it's 362 days. I still hold the record for for length of time between interview and hire at ESPN. <laughs> when the guy, the guy that used to interview everyone who's in the book, when he retired a few years ago, I called him, and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, don't worry, you still hold the record." So, so you know, I, I kind of knew how it was going to start and end. But you know, again, we have 30 years almost to think about what are the themes. And, you know, and, and who are the characters and, and, um, and, and, you know, seeing the, what happened with the players years later, but, you know, you mentioned the movies, like there's Bull Durham and there's been, you know, a couple, a couple of great books, you know, uh, Bob Ryan and, and John Feinstein over the years that have written about minor leagues, but this all player centered, you know, even Bull Durham is really essentially player centered. And, but when you watch Bull Durham though, I think you remember the old country guy that did the radio, right. And Millie who hung around the clubhouse and, and you know all that, th- those were those were my people. Those were the people I hung out with, and that's really what this book is. It's, it's the people that actually make the games happen, uh, as opposed to the guys who are playing. And there's plenty. There, there's player stuff in there, 
but this is really about the people that that grind, you know, 70 plus home games a year every summer to make it happen. Yeah, and, and between all the journaling you were doing and all the collecting of stuff, you knew something special was happening that year. But given all your experience at ESPN since covering college athletics, covering NASCAR, how has that kind of colored how you remember that time in 94? Well, it's it, it, unfortunately, it's very timely right now because of all the changes that are happening in minor league baseball. You know, I tell you, I, you talk about being terrified. You know, so this is like a three-year process. And I had pitched this book years ago, and then finally uh, I had some – I had a little fortune to have some success with another book I wrote about five years ago, and the publisher was like, we'd like to revisit this minor league baseball idea. And so three years ago, we signed a contract. And two years ago, I start writing. And a year ago, almost a year ago, first week of April of 2022, I turned in the, the initial draft manuscript. And so we go through all the stuff during the summer and we kind of have a what a lock picture, right? We got the final book in the fall. And then we get word that the Astral Tourists might lose their team because, because improvements they have to make to the ballpark. And so the book, unfortunately, has become timely because I think it's a snapshot of the feel of a minor league ballpark that we still want to hold on to, even as it had become big business and more corporatized is the term I always use, you know, this snapshot of 94 when, when, when baseball in general was just at a crossroads, this is the year of the strike. This is Michael Jordan playing minor league ball. Um, you know, a lot of the mom and pop teams like the tourists were trying to decide, should we sell our ownership to corporations or not? And these big conglomerates, and we're kind of still there, you know, we're, we're at this other crossroads in the history of minor league baseball. So it's, it was unfortunately timely, but I tell you this, the, you know, as you guys know, um, the city of Asheville, um, the county, even the state of North Carolina, uh, you know, they ponied up and found the money to to do improvement. And improvements need to be made in McCormick Field, but it's a lot of money. And I'm telling you, a month ago, I was pretty nervous, boys, because my book was literally going to drop like three days after they find out maybe the team goes away after 100 years. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that's probably not good for business. Yeah, I mean, well, kind of piggybacking off that, given the improvements that are coming to McCormick Field, what makes McCormick Field special? I mean, it's one of the oldest places in minor league baseball. It's been around near a century, if not more than that now. Yeah, Babe Ruth yeah, played 19- there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Babe Ruth played there. Uh, countless veterans. I mean, Craig Biggio played there, I know, for a little while. Yeah, Todd Helton played for the tour. Willie Stargell played for what's considered the greatest tourist team ever back in the early 60s. Um, but, yeah, Ty Cobb played in the first official game in this ballpark. I mean, yeah, you know, so- um, Heine Manoush had a home run. I mean, you know, it was – so it was – um. Jackie Robinson played here. The Dodgers would always barnstorm through because they were an affiliate. And so it, but Branch Rickey, this is his favorite ballpark. Branch Rickey, um, with multiple major league teams, you know, signed with the tourists as a minor league affiliate. And and everybody in Asheville believed it was just so that he could just sit in the grandstand because he loved it here so much. So, yeah, and, and it's it's unique because it is, I mean, the, the yes, the ballpark has changed. You know, they built the original version in 1924. Uh, they rebuilt the ballpark in 1992, and now obviously there's going to be essentially a rebuild coming, you know, in the next several years. But the field is the same. I remember clear as about the first time I came to ball game here, the old original ballpark was still standing. This is in the late 80s, and I mean, you literally would walk. They tell you that you, you would walk from from this grandstand to another on like a gangplank, and that wood would just bounce. You know, nails sticking out of it. And they finally tore that down, built it, but the, but the field stayed the same. I went to college at the University of Tennessee, 
and was living in South Carolina. So I would drive through Asheville going to school and would purposely drive through Asheville to check on the McCormick Field construction because that's what a sicko I am. And I would go by there, and but but you know, there's no grandstand. Like the the stadium's completely gone, but the field was there, and they had it protected. So home plate, same place. You know, the outfield wall essentially was the same. And so yeah, the, the but it's built on the side of a mountain. Uh, it's really carved into the side of a mountain. You go down a left field line, and uh, kind of where you go around to kind of the hidden concession stand and bathroom, and you were literally up inside the mountain because they carved a big, you know, they came through with a big old you know, ground scooper and put the ballpark in there. And so it's, it's just, it's unique. It, it, the, the setting is unique. Um, at night, you know, when you park up on top of the hill, there's a high school football stadium up there. If you, if you stand up there and look down onto the ballpark, it's the picture that's on the cover of the book, the view looking back toward the city and the mountains and the ballpark sits down there. I mean, it's the best, man. It, it's, um, it, to, and to me, it sums it up. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you guys. I mean, none of us have been to many ballparks as, as Ben. I know I've been a lot. <laughs> I've, been, I've been 129. That's my count now. And uh, but I, you never see one like McCormick because of where it's carved into the side of this mountain. And so that that's what I think we all look for is uniqueness, you know, character. And McCormick Field has had it since 1924. That's such a cool description too, because McCormick Field is unique in that you know we talk so often about ballparks that have these dramatic backdrops of uh, you know if it's Charlotte and it looks toward downtown, or if it's yeah. Salt Lake and it looks toward the mountains. McCormick Field is almost like it's it's mystical in that when you get into that ballpark. The only thing you're focused on is the baseball in front of you, and it lends itself to these mythical moments and these these big time personalities. I remember when I was working in the Carolina League, we uh, had a story that rocketed around the clubhouse of a kid, Cody Johnson, who hit a home run onto that high school football field behind yeah. McCormick Field, and it's yeah. something about that setting that seems to really lend itself to those moments. When you think back on that summer, you pointed out it was a, a transformative summer for baseball because middle of the season, the major league season ends. What was the reaction like for fans who now the only option is minor league baseball? What do you remember about when that news came down and kind of the the landscape of minor league baseball and how much more important it became? It became important because, you know, people forget this now, but the fans were really angry at the players. You know, that was a player strike. And, and, and you know, and, and usually in those things, as a sports writer who has written things about athletes, I've learned very quickly the fans almost always side with the athletes. You know, you're you spark sports writer idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. But in this case, the the, the fan base largely sided with the owners because the players are going on strike. Well, you jerks, you guys are making you know millions of dollars a year, and I work at the bank. You know why why are you why are you walking off the job? And it helped minor league baseball because minor league baseball was viewed as, all right, these guys are playing for the love of the game and they're not making any money. And, you know, if I contribute money to Asheville or Hickory or, you know, Lansing or Rancho Cucamonga or wherever, I'm contributing to the people who really love the game. You know, this is the game that I love. And so I felt like we have, we had two reasons, I believe. We had a big year attendance-wise that year, way big over the year before. And, and to me, there were two reasons. Number one, it was that embracing of minor league baseball because there was a lot of anger focus toward major league baseball because the strike didn't happen until the second half of the summer. Right. But we spent the whole year knowing it was going to happen. When I was at the winter meetings looking for a job, it was the first time the major leaguers didn't show up for the winter meetings. And and the, the minor league owners were terrified because they're thinking, are we going to get players? You know, or you know, if they, if they call up replacement players, you know, how does that work with us? Or or if we don't do we get players at all. And so we had this 
kind of cloud. The other part was Michael Jordan. You know, the, the fact that Michael Jordan was playing minor league baseball, we sold out. Uh, we, we had almost complete sellouts of all of our home games against the Hickory Crawdads on the off chance that Michael might be demoted, which didn't seem that unlikely in the middle of the summer when he was hitting like a, you know, 202. But when, but we saw it almost all our home games against Hickory because if Michael had been sent to, to a ball, he would have come, he would have been in town for that. So it was, those were the two things that happened. And, and so, yeah, the major league baseball strike and the, and the constant threat of it, there's no question. I think a lot of towns embraced minor league baseball because they were like, well, these guys are with us. And uh, you know, whether that was accurate or not, it didn't matter. It sold tickets. Ryan, you mentioned um, you know the the history of McCormick Field, and we talked about uh, the fact that Babe Ruth played there. There was actually a rumor that Babe Ruth died while playing yeah. there in in 1925. He had like a belly ache, and I think he fainted or something, and he was on the on the train. Uh, and you're not that far away from it, as of no, right no, I, I, you probably can't see it, but on our Zoom call right now, I'm pointing at a tall brick building right in the middle of downtown Asheville. That was a hotel. So, yeah, so the, the, the Yankees were doing a barnstorming tour uh, on their way uh, back from, from Florida up to New York. And they stopped in Chattanooga. They stopped in Knoxville. And then they took the train snaking through, you know, the Smoky Mountains from Knoxville to Asheville. Well, the babe had not felt great, you know, throughout this. In fact, he didn't even play. And, and he took batting practice but didn't play in Chattanooga and Knoxville. Well, he got really sick on the train. And so when the train pulled in, the old train station was right around the corner from where I'm sitting here in Asheville. The team gets off the train, and Babe Ruth passes out and literally landed. His big, you know, his large body landed on the backs of these players who caught him. And thank goodness, because he'd hit the marble, you know, floor of the train station. So the team goes to McCormick Field to play an exhibition game. And the Babe goes to this hotel right outside of my hotel. And essentially, they turn it into a hospital room. And there's a there's a picture of him lying in bed um, that the Asheville Citizen Times and newspaper had, and he's so angry. There's a photographer in his room, but what you can't tell in the picture because it's black and white is he has a pink robe on. The only robe they could find to fit the babe with his large frame was it was a was a, a nightgown, and they cut up cut it through the back, and so he's got that on the bed. Well, the team plays a game and leaves, and the babe stays in Asheville, and there was a newspaper uh, all the way in England that reported that Babe Ruth had died in Asheville because the Yankees came to town with him and they left without him. And then to make matters worse, they finally get the Babe on the train and they have to go through Statesville, North Carolina and change trains where they missed their connection. So now he's stuck in Statesville. And then when he finally got to New York, he he got queasy on the, on the train again, fell and cracked his head and, and knocked himself out. And so they're unloading the Babe's big butt on this stretcher at the train station, it just so happens another major league team is going through the train station, and they see Babe Ruth, and they're like, oh, he is dead. And so, yeah, people believe that Babe Ruth died about six blocks from here in downtown Asheville. The good news is he was okay. It was a stomach abscess. He actually ended up missing about half the season that year. But they, but the, the funny part was in the Asheville papers, I went back and looked them all up, uh, the local doctor that was assigned to Babe Ruth, he chose this as a moment to to openly question anyone who sinned, you know, he's like, well, Babe Ruth needs to make life changes. And if somebody doesn't monitor his diet, he's going to die. And, you know, and all that stuff. And there were rumors about, you know, the babe may have uh, contracted some social diseases. I mean, it got completely out of control. The good news is he came back, he played and, and he had a great quote that I use in the book. He stood 
at the entrance of McCormick Field and said, you know, what a damn beautiful ballpark. And I, I used that a lot in the book. But it was, uh, it, it, it was, yeah, Babe Ruth supposedly died just around the corner from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> okay. And it's just like that's the perfect minor league baseball story. Yeah. And there are that's so great. many of those in Asheville. And, you know, that's where, where Crash Davis hit his record-breaking home run at the end of Bull Durham because he's playing for the tourists by that point. And yeah. you just hear all these stories about Asheville and – you as a as a North Carolina guy, we always talk about North Carolina is really the cradle of minor league baseball. Yeah. And when you think back to the early days, what was it about minor league baseball that hooked you, that sent you on this journey where eventually you'd intern? And now, I mean, you really carry the flag for minor league baseball, rocking hats on TV and being somebody who's so knowledgeable about it, which I know you probably know. It's not super common in sports media that people really get the minor leagues and what it's all about. What was it that laid the groundwork for you with that? Well, I appreciate you saying all that, number one. But number two, I, that's what I grew up with. And, and, again, you mentioned the Carolinas. When I was a kid – so I looked this up. Almost 70 towns in the state of North Carolina have had a minor league team at one point or another. There aren't even that many towns in the state. And, and so even and back in the day – so, you know, so in my business, when you're on TV, you're not supposed to reveal how old you are. Well, unfortunately, with the book, if you do the math, you can figure out. If I graduated college here and I worked there, it's, it's – but – you know, yeah, I was a 36. kid. I'm a kid of the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a kid of the '70s, right? I'm a I'm a Gen One Star Wars fan. You know, I went and saw it in the theater <laughs> when I was a kid when it first came out. I'm I'm willing to admit that. But I, um, you know, the Braves might as well have been a thousand miles away. You know, if you're going to Atlanta, that's a that's a you know that's a, that's a vacation. You're spending the night. You know, uh, the Orioles were. We didn't know the Orioles. I mean, my brother's an Orioles fan, but I, I I thought that was I literally thought that was like four time zones away when I was a kid. But we could get in the car. Uh, growing up in Raleigh, I lived in a bunch of different places in North Carolina, but but primarily in Raleigh. We could get in the car in Raleigh, and we could go to Durham. Um, we could go – eventually we could go to Zebulon. We could go to Burlington. We could go to Kinston. We could go down to Wilmington and see the Port City Roosters. We could go see the Fayetteville Generals. We could go to Asheville. I mean, it was – we could go to Martinsville, Virginia. We could go to Danville, Virginia. We could go to Richmond, Virginia. There were all these places. Even in South Carolina, every – it felt like every little town had a team. And so, you know, even – well, my dad worked at Gardner-Webb University in the late 1970s in Shelby, North Carolina, just down the mountain from where I'm sitting. Tiny town. We had a minor league baseball team. We had a Western Carolinas team. We had Shelby Reds and then the Shelby Pirates. And we would go to Shelby High School. And now it's a show palace. Now it's where they play the American Legion World Series. But back then it was literally a chicken wire high school ballpark. And it would be us, me, my dad, my brother, my mom. And then it would be like, five scouts and three girlfriends. That was it. And so we get autographs of these guys. My, my favorite, I, I love the guy named Pat Rubino, and he was from the West Coast. And Pat Rubino, I don't think, ever got any higher than, than, than A-ball. And my brother loved a guy named Eddie Vargas. And Eddie Vargas, who who got a, had a cup of coffee with the Pirates, but Eddie Vargas literally would – he would walk over to my brother before games and talk to him every game. And one time, so I'm going to hit a home run for you tonight, Sam. And he blasted one. And then – Ten years later, when my brother was like in college, he went to a game and Eddie was a coach somewhere. And my brother went down to the first baseline and Eddie Vargas goes, Sam, like he knew who he was. And so that's that was minor league baseball, man. That, that was and we would take notes. There was that great book by Bob Wood written in the 80s, uh, Dodger Dogs to Fenway Franks. And he was he was a middle school teacher that that drove across the country one summer and hit every major league park. And he kept a report card of like the food and the you know, how nice were the employees and what was the parking lot. And my family would do that. We Because of that book, we would go to a game 
you know, in, in, in Kinston. And on the way back to Raleigh that night, we would do a report card. And so to get to live that, even just for a summer, that was, uh, that's pretty cool. Kinston is my favorite ballpark on the planet, by the way. Oh, I'm, dude, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm glad it's back online. Me too. It's, it's, it's the perfect example of what these teams mean to these towns and why you can't take these teams away. You know, Kinston, it was sad, man. You you would you would go to Kinston and, and go to the Kinstonian and eat, and there's the ball, Grand Prince, just sitting there, and it's empty. And I was so excited. Uh, during COVID, my family went to the Outer Banks for spring break, and the um, and the Wood Ducks had just gotten going, and we went down and uh, and kind of knocked around the ballpark while it was empty, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited this place is back online because uh, it, it did. It made me sad. It's, it's an incredible place, and there are so many of those, and you are in a city that is home to one of the real crown jewels of, of minor league baseball. But it's interesting because before we started going, I made the comment, you got the Beer City hat on, the Asheville alternate logo, and you said, yeah. you know, when I was here – this was not what it is now. And Asheville, oh. people, you know, talk about some of the the greatest spots uh, in America. And Asheville is still – I live in Denver. I always say Asheville is what Boulder pretends it is. Like Asheville yeah. is very – it's very artsy. It's very cool. It's very bohemian, as you said. But when you were there in the mid-'90s, it was not that. What is it like for you now coming back? You said looking out the window, you know, when I was here, these were all abandoned warehouses. Now it's brewery after brewery after brewery. Yeah. What is it like seeing it as it is right now? I mean, I know it's not the first time that you've seen it these days, but looking back on what it was like in 1994 has got to be strange. I mean, I'm literally looking at a group of hipsters out here and they're 100% smoking weed and they're and, and eating pizza and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. So that's, that's what I, but when I lived here, so and I'm, I'm not joking. All is like, I did, a, I did, a, I did a signing at a bookstore last night and the bookstore was here when I was here, Malaprops back in 94, but across the street was this amazing, you know, ornate building that was boarded up. And it was right across the street from the hotel where Babe Ruth was laid up and it was boarded up. And now all these places are awesome, you know, and, and it's very, it's very, you know, eclectic and all that stuff, but it's cool. But yeah, so I write about this in the book, you know, the, the micro brew thing, the, the craft beer thing really started here in Asheville. And there's other places I understand guys were doing the garage, whatever, but there was, there was a scientist from Charlotte that in, in, again, I can see it from here where I'm sitting in my hotel um, he started concocting this home brew in the basement of a tavern. And eventually it became, you know, the Sierra Nevada and a billion dollar business and all this other, the, the whole city's built around it. And so meanwhile, literally the same summer, we're at the ballpark. We sold Budweiser, Bud Light, Miller Genuine Draft. We did, we had Coors Light. No one actually wanted it, but we had Coors Light because that's what, because we were a Rockies affiliate. And if you wanted to get really fancy, like if you wanted to travel the world, you could get Killian's Red. That was it. That was as exotic <laughs> as we, no one bought Killian's Red unless they were out of everything. If we had just sold Budweiser, we would have been fine. I, I, I joke in the book, I said, you know, craft beer. Somebody offered you a craft beer in 1994, then you would have thought it was a beer with like cheese in it, right? Craft with a K. We, we had no idea what that was. <laughs> and now you guys know this. You go to McCormick and they, Larry Hawkins, who was an intern just a couple years after me and has been the general manager there forever, you know, he's a beer connoisseur and they, I mean, it's like food trucks, like depending on what homestand you go to, there's nine different beers that you can get. And so, you know, people come and collect beers. What used to be the front office when I lived there, um, the, the lobby of the front office that I write about in the book is now like this right field 
um, you know, kind of, you know, beer bar place with all these taps that change out all the time. Yeah. I write all the time in the book about Ron McKee, who was our boss and is, and is on the Mount Rushmore minor league, you know, um, bosses, uh, you came up with thirsty Thursday, but Ron had this, when they, when they built him an office, they had this thing I call it the Vatican porch because he had this kind of balcony off his office and he'd walk out there and just yell at us, you know, and yell at whoever, but he would just stand there during games. You know, you look, he looked like the Pope. He's standing out there on the Vatican porch watching the game, <laughs> looking over the bullpen. Well, now that's where, you know, that's where overserved tourist fans will stand with their, you know, <laughs> with whatever, whatever new IPA it is watching the ball game. They own the trademark for Thursday, Thursday, right, Ben? Oh yeah. No, that, yeah. That franchise does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, so the McKee family, unfortunately we lost Ron a couple of years ago, but I'm going to actually sit with his wife, Carolyn tonight at the tourist game. And I mailed her a book when we got the first advanced copies of the book. And when you mail things to the McKee family, you mail it to McKee Road. And they live on like McKee Mountain. And Thirsty Thursday paid for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the house that Thirsty Thursday built. Built an uh, empire on $1 drafts. I like it. <laughs> 100%. Um, well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Ron McKee because he emerges as you know, certainly one of the most vivid uh, characters in the book and definitely an old school minor league baseball guy. Um, you know, but there's a lot of characters in this book, you know, the other interns you worked with and were you know, rooming with at a uh, retirement home, you know, trying yeah. to be quiet after 7 p.m. Um, you know, there's people you mentioned that are still working in minor league baseball today, you know, three decades later. Um, what has the response been to this book, you know, from people who you made into a character in the book? And, um, you know, that's got to be pretty surreal for these people you know, some three decades later to, to read about this in a book. Yeah. And, and made the writer nervous, to be honest with you, you know, um, and again, I, I'm literally, I'm going to post this on Instagram a little bit. I'm literally looking down from my hotel room on the Thomas Wolfe house where Thomas Wolfe grew up and famous American author. And, you know, Thomas Wolfe wrote a book, look homeward angel that was about growing up in Asheville, but he changed the names and changed the name of the town. But everyone in Asheville realized very quickly it was about them and they recognized themselves in the book. Well, that's why he wrote, you can't go home again because after he wrote that he couldn't go home again. And so I <laughs> thought about Thomas Wolf a lot because I, and I mentioned earlier, my, my, my biggest goal, and this is the dedication on the first page of the book is to the people that grind it out every night in Marley ballparks. I want to do right by them. And that's especially true of the people that I live to work with you know, that summer. And that's why I told the publishers, I need X amount of copies of the book as soon as it comes off the, the printer. And, and I sent, I, I, I sent those books out, went to the post office, sent out myself to each one of the, of the main characters that I worked with that summer because I wanted to give them advanced. No, I didn't really start promoting the book till a week before it came out because I wanted them to read it first. And, um, and I let them know, I can't change anything. This is done, but um, but I want you to know what it is. And, and knock on wood, uh, the reaction has been has been very positive. And uh, and I think they know that I love them. You know, that that's that's the main thing is and I do. I it was funny because you those people were only really in my life life for you know that summer. And some of them I've not seen again, or I've only seen a handful of times, but I'm in contact with them, you know, for 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 all of its uh twisted evilness sometimes, Facebook's good when you're trying to track down people you haven't talked to in a long time. And we have a connection, you know, it's funny too. I didn't really know the players that well, because we kind of did our thing and the players did their thing. But I was talking to Jamie Wright who pitched in the big leagues almost two decades and was our nuclear loose. She was our bonus baby on that team. Great guy. 
And uh, but I didn't really know him. He was young on that team, and we didn't hang out with the players. But I talked to him on the phone for a while, and he said there's something about certain teams and seasons. And he told me, he said all the teams I played on, he goes, there's only a couple of group texts, and there's a there's a there's a 94 tourist group text, which which <laughs> wow. blew my mind. You know, those guys are still friends. That's so awesome. That's that's how I feel about about this group. You know, the group I work with. You know, in the office, and uh, yeah, but yeah, a little nervous because um. And there's also, you know, uh, like the Battle of Hickory, the great mascot fight that that I wrote an entire chapter about. It honestly, that was the sample chapter that got the book sold to the publisher. Um, Dan Rakowski, um, who is now the president of the Charlotte Knights, and I'm a Charlotte Knights season ticket holder. Ben knows that. Um, Dan was the general manager of the, of the then brand new Hickory Crawdads, and I have received word that perhaps there's some questions about how I remember the mascot fight and how it actually went down. But my response to that, as I wrote in the book, great conflicts and in, in, in the annals of history are remembered differently by different people. So, and plus <laughs> I, th- I think anyone who worked for the Hickory Crawdads back then probably still has PTSD from the whole, from the whole week. So yeah, it's uh, a power remember. It's like somebody describing the battle of Waterloo. It's like pretty much that's it. No, 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 no. Yeah, it, yeah. All, all those people at Gettysburg that, that lived in those farms and watched the battle from different hillsides. Everybody had saw, a different vantage they all saw point. Five different things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, Ryan, we'll, we'll let you go on this one. Uh, you mentioned it might rain tonight in Nashville yeah. and yeah. you know, once a minor league employee, always a minor league employee. What happens if they ask you to pull tarp? Uh, I'm not, you know, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> Talk t- 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 about PTSD, but I'll definitely do it. I mean, in the book, I, the tarp almost killed me twice. Um, you know, I had the deal. I had the deal where I fell down. You know, because you know, you know, when, so folks, y- y'all know when you watch a major league game and they pull the tarp, there's 50 people and it looks like a silk bed sheet. You know, being thrown over a mattress. That's at, at, at McCormick Field. We had six people, maybe, unless we could recruit people out of the stands, but. But I had the one deal where the roof was closing on me, where I slipped and fell down, and the tarp just kept going. And all I could see was daylight disappearing. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, if this tarp drops and it's pouring down rain, if this tarp drops, you know, they're not going to get me out of here tomorrow morning. <laughs> and and the other time was I went airborne. I, I, I wrote a book. I said, if you ever ridden Soarin' at Disney World, you know, the ride where your feet dangle and you fly over the Eiffel Tower and, and, and the pyramids also, that's – the wind got up underneath the tarp, and I went up in the air, hanging on to the to the vinyl. Uh, Doing, I, I, I was Fred Kendall was the manager of the of the, of the Hickory Crawdads, longtime major leaguer. Son Jason, you know, played forever, and I I landed, I let go. In my mind, I was forty feet up in the air. It's probably five feet. I let go and landed. And I wrote in the book. I said, in my mind, I'm I'm a big Captain America guy. I wrote that I, in my mind, I landed like Captain America, like you know, stuck the three point landing. The reality is, I look like a hostage they no longer needed threw out the side of a van, right? <laughs> so I, I crawl into the dugout. My hands were shaking. And Fred Kendall looked at me. He's, you all right? I go, I don't know, man. And he kind of, he literally talked me down. He started telling me stories about crazy tarp moments he'd seen. But yeah, that's a really long way of saying, if it comes time to pull the tarp, I will volunteer to help pull the tarp. But, um, but my, if I if I start crying in the middle of it, then don't you know? Don't judge me. I will say that as Sam asked that, Ryan's face was like that thousand yard stare from like a like an yeah. old war painting. 
You know, that yeah. was uh, yeah, yeah. 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 The, well, the, I look like Matt Damon at the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan. No, but the, <laughs> but the, the good news is, is that now I don't feel that much pressure about throwing out the first pitch because now I'm just going to be looking at the sky. Going, <laughs> Please true. don't rain. Please hey, there don't. we I'll, go. I feel the hell of pulling the tarp. Yeah, yeah. anxiety yeah. on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. well. Pulling tarp is most definitely part of the circus of baseball. The book, Welcome to the Circus of Baseball by Ryan McGee. Um, check it out if you haven't already. It just came out uh, earlier this week. It is in yeah. uh, bookstores everywhere. I'm sure all the usual online selling suspects as well. Um, but it's a super fun book. And um, I can only assume your next one's going to be about how Babe Ruth almost died in Nashville. So we're yeah, looking yeah. To I might go over here. And, I might go over here tonight after the game and see if I can't conjure up the Babe's ghost over there. But I, I appreciate you guys having me. Listen, you I have to wear a pink robe though. Oh yeah, no, oh, I've got boy. one. I'll, I'll okay. always travel. Okay. Just carry yeah, one around. Uh, yeah, Make yeah, sure yeah, you're yeah. covered. Yeah. Again, don't judge me what I do at night. But but the uh, <laughs> but it's it, but I appreciate you guys having me because because you know. We we connected and, and I was so excited to finally meet Ben and, and Capitals a couple of years ago. But it, it's just I identify immediately. Uh, you know, real knows real, and I know who really loves it, and you guys really love it. And so, uh, so when when y'all reached out, I was I was like, man, this is this is perfect. So thank you. Yeah, well, likewise, Ryan. We really support uh, your your love of minor league. We really appreciate your love of minor league baseball. And uh, as Tyler said, it's 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 kind of rare for people who aren't. Uh, really explicitly covering it as their job to to care as much as you. So it's always great to have you as, a, as an advocate. And, uh, you know, best of luck with the mascot battle truthers out there and all the inevitable <laughs> uh, back and forths. And uh, in the meantime, if you're listening to this, read the book. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. Thanks so much to Ryan McGee for joining us on the podcast. We could talk another three hours, but I think it's already been about 40. So we should let you go. You got a busy day. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, boys. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One could generally be counted on. The others are absolute zeros. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Virginia Lovers. B. The Rosendale Romeos. C. The Lewiston Cupids. You hit your mark if you picked C. The Lewiston Cupids who wooed fans in an iteration of the old New England League of 1914 and 1915. Playing in Lewiston, Maine, the once and future home of teams called the Lewiston Twins because of Lewiston's Twin Cities relationship with Auburn across the Androscoggin River, these Cupids really knew how to get the opposition to fall. Occasionally, anyway. The Cupids were worthy of affection from fans, but it hardly could have been love at first sight. In an April 20th scrimmage against Bates College in 1914, the young scholars totally rejected the pros every advance, with the academics schooling the Cupids 14-2. That initial campaign proved mighty lonesome for our Cupids, as the team failed to establish a successful relationship with three gentlemen suitors, or gentlemen skippers. <laughs> 
unable to get started with Red McMahon, proving a mismatch with Joe Judge, and falling out with Terry McGovern. Lewiston wound up the season tied for fifth place in the eighth team circuit, going 57 and 66. The arrow didn't point up for the Cupids in 1915 either, despite the adoring leadership of Arthur Irwin. The very Arthur Irwin, whose name you recognize from his days as a member of the 1884 Providence Grays in the National League. For 15, Irwin took the helm of the Lewiston Club, of which he had purchased a part. It might have been a single wing, because the Cupids couldn't help but go round in circles all summer. But the loveliest day the Cupids ever had was that August 7th, when Cuban-born righty Oscar Tuero no-hit Lowell in Game 1 of a doubleheader, and Otto Rettig was on his way to matching Tuero in Game 2 when it was called in the fifth. On the last day of that month, Tuero nearly threw another no-no, this time putting Portland out to sea until the tenth, when the opposition got to Tuero for a run on two hits to break the Cupid's heart. As fine as certain elements of the Cupid's game could be, they just didn't have that special spark. Going 50-59 and 59 for sixth place in the season that was the New England League's last until after the Great War. And that's how the Cupids split up. Aww. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these ball clubs had an evil streak in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Idaho Falls Fiends. B. The Des Moines Demons. C. The Herkimer Tormentors. Want to know the answer? Get me. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is doing some light gardening, and I've got to check the bulbs. We had so much fun on this week's episode of the show before the show. A huge thanks again to Ryan McGee, uh, to Josh Jackson for swinging by as well, and uh, we're getting set to wrap this one up. But before we do, um, some items of note. We are still... Uh, in the process of getting the fans episode all together. We're going to uh, get set to roll that out the first week of May and be on the lookout. If you're one of the fans who has reached out to us, we have had such awesome feedback from uh, people who have wanted to be involved in this episode after 400 episodes of the show before the show podcast. Um, so we're excited to uh, to get that underway, get those interviews pieced together and get that episode out to you coming up here in the next few weeks. And um yeah, before we wrap this thing up, we're going to tell you a little bit about our MILB.TV picks of the week. But not really, because we're not picking specific games, Sam. Yeah, I mean, it's just a good time to remember that MILB TV both exists, but also this year, it's also available in your at-bat subscription. So if you already subscribe to MLB at-bat, and this is huge, this is like so awesome that it's coming in this way. If you already have an at-bat subscription, minor league games come with that. Now, the way you're going to be able to see them is you have to set a favorite team. So if you set, in Tyler's case, the Colorado Rockies, you'll be able to see Albuquerque. I don't, Hartford, I don't know her. I don't know her. You don't know the Colorado. Well, you want to watch I'm not, watch this, I'm right? not Mariah Carey meme now. No, I do. I, yeah, I want to yeah. listen to, to a, you know, a fantastic uh, Hartford Yard Goats broadcast and Albuquerque Isotopes broadcast. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, exactly. So you have to, through the at-bat app, you set your favorite team. The minor league teams that are playing that night will be available on the home screen. 
if you want to watch another game, just reset your favorite team. So if you want to watch a Frisco Rough Riders game, and you should, that team is loaded. They have four top 100 prospects between Evan Carter, Owen White, Luis Angel Acuna, and Jack Leiter. You have to set it to the Texas Rangers. Then that game will be available to you too. We also have the free game of the day, um, which is available to everybody. We're going to be promoting that aggressively through MLB Pipeline again this season. Really excited for that to come back. But the mainline thing here is you can still subscribe to MILB TV if that's all you want, and that's all you want to do is watch minor league baseball. You're not going to have bigger supporters than us in doing so. But if you already have an at-bat subscription, you also have minor league access to that. So go out, find your double A, your high A, your single A affiliates that are televised this weekend. Go watch them through the at-bat app or through MILB TV in the first pitch app. So many more ways to watch minor league baseball this year. So we won't give you favorites now, but we will continue this as we've done for years now at the end of each podcast. We'll bring you specific games we'll be following each weekend. I like it. Ben, what do you got coming up? Oh, boy, I got a lot. You know, it's just been so crazy with getting the ballpark guides out, doing a lot of, uh, you know, opening day related material, you know, articles on, uh, you know, promotions to look forward to. Sam and I collaborating on the opening day guide, our whole group effort on the reasons to be excited for minor league baseball opening day. The newsletter coming out every Thursday. Subscribe to the Ben's Biz Beat. Go to MILB.com and uh, figure it out or let me know and I will I will sign you up. Uh, so all those things keep going. But I'm really, Sam and I were just talking about this, really looking forward to next week to kind of like take a breath and be like, okay, it's the season. What's next? And get into a rhythm with the things we're covering. There's so much going on right now. Um, you know, pro- promotions to look forward to. I have not even scheduled my road trips. I'm just in a strange place right now with like figuring out how to do that. And uh, there's still a lot to figure out. So I've got a lot coming. A lot of it is TBD, which stands for, if you didn't know, to be determined. Oh, I thought you were going to make a two Ben's. Uh, that's what I thought. Two Ben's determination. I was trying to come up with something clever. Sam was looking at me wide eyed and like <laughs> super excited for what the I was anticipation. <laughs> Yeah, but I, uh, you know, I blew it. <laughs> well, you can find uh, all of that info uh, for minor league games on MLB TV and more. MILB.com. MLB.com. Check out all of our prospects up at MLB Pipeline as well. And uh, that'll do it for Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill and Josh Jackson. And a huge thanks to Ryan McGee. My name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week. 